This is a CBC Podcast. Hi there, it's Pia, and every Wednesday, we're bringing you a bonus podcast. One handpicked story from the week's round of the Sunday magazine that we think is definitely worth hearing or hearing again. Of course, you can hear all of our stories on the full podcast that we put out on Sunday and on the CBC Listen app. All right, here's this week's highlight. The rise of things like chatbots and image generators has made AI more visible than ever, but it's all the product of work done over many decades by many great scientific minds experimenting quietly behind the scenes, including Fei-Fei Li. Her contributions to the field and computer vision in particular have led some to dub her the so-called godmother of AI. Feifei's a computer scientist at Stanford University, a former vice president at Google, and co-director of the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. She also recently wrote a memoir. That is called The World's I See. Feifei Li, hello. Hello, Pia. Very nice to be here. I think for many of us watching the recent explosion of AI has been um, kind of shocking, maybe quite disconcerting to a lot of us, almost like science fiction come to life. But what has it been like for you to watch things like generative chatbots really burst onto the scene? Yeah, well, I have been in AI technology and research and the ecosystem for more more than two decades. Um, So this field continues to excite me, but obviously I feel a little different from the general public. But having said that, I do think uh, what happened over a little over a year ago was an inflection point. It was an uh, incredible inf- inflection point of this technology hitting the public in a very compelling way, a, uh, a virtual chat um, bot or or agent that can talk to people, basically. And that has really opened the floodgate of possibilities and imagination and the social discourse and concerns and everything. So it does feel like an inflection point, and it's an important one. Well, let me just say, hearing you say that you're excited by this, I use the word disconcerting, reassures me a little bit. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> let's, uh, let's help our listeners understand the foundational role that you played and what we are seeing today. So you were the driving force behind something called ImageNet, which has helped make computers, quote unquote, see. Can you explain what exactly that is? Yeah, so ImageNet was a project that was uh, finished at around uh, 2009. It was a ginormous uh, training and benchmarking data set to push the field of computer vision, especially seeing objects, um, forward. And uh, the moment, a historical milestone moment was ImageNet was the data set that empowered neural network algorithm or what people would call deep learning algorithm. And uh, by 2012, the 
effect or the power of image that would become very, uh, very visible when um, a group of Canadian uh, scientists, computer scientists, use image that to train a very powerful neural network to show that computers can recognize objects in photos. But I think what made ImageNet uh, important in this journey was that if we fast forward to now, everything we've seen in the progress of AI since you know more than a decade ago is driven by data and algorithm together, and uh, including the latest uh, GPT and large language model technology. But what happened around 2009 is that um, that was not obvious at all. Data was very much a second-class citizen in the world of AI and machine learning research. Our systems more or less didn't work. And it was a huge bet to ask the field to do a paradigm shift to recognize the importance of data. And so why is vision so key to making an intelligent computer? Well, this is a great question, Pia. Well, let's think about intelligent animals in the world. Many animals are intelligent, but of course, humans, people are the most intelligent animals we know, right? And think about our lives, that we do things by talking, by hearing, by touching, but we do a lot of things by seeing. We uh, hmm. navigate the world, we, uh, we manipulate objects, we communicate with each other, we entertain ourselves, we read, we, you know, we, we cross the street, we cook omelets, we, uh, we uh, type. <laughs> We, you know, everything we do almost involves vision. It is by far the largest sensory functionality in our brain. So this is why vision is part of the cornerstone of intelligence. Yeah, it's always been that way, hasn't it? Like if I was an animal, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago, I needed to you know, see who my predators were, see see the food, you know, all those things. That it was all very exactly. it's, it's, it's as old as time. Exactly. And of course, there are, you know, unfortunately, there are people with visual impairments and then our brain is so powerful and elastic that it develops other compensation uh, methods. But by and large, in, in also in animal world, vision is a very important uh, functionality. Hmm. So I don't know, maybe this is getting a bit philosophical, maybe not, but but can computers really see? Like I get animals, beings, vision is important, but can computers see? Well, depending on what you define seeing, the, the general definition of seeing and perception is taking lights as input and figure out what they tell you, not just at the red, blue, green RGB value, not just shape, but everything from um, seeing the light and uh, and color all the way to, oh, I, right now I see my laptop in front of me on a wooden table in a room of certain shape. If you define that as seeing, absolutely computers see. Computers today take uh, imageries captured by cameras and sensors and turn that information into meaningful understanding and return it into the world either to people or to, you know, machine language to, to continue to function. For example, 
Many of the newer cars that we drive and buy have lane detection, assistive driving,、mm. and that's absolutely、uh, the car seeing things to help humans.、Um, you know, your 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 photo album. On your smartphone helps you to sort, right? I I can put grandmother's、uh, name and then ask for the photo album to give me all the pictures of my grandma, and that is seeing. So yes, absolutely,、hmm. computers see a lot. Okay, let me continue down this train of thought.、Um, I know the mystery of intelligence was something that got you interested in this field. So let me ask you this: Are computers really intelligent? And again, I think intelligence is a very, very nuanced and loaded and multi-dimensional term. Some of the intelligence involves, like what we just said, interpreting information, seeing patterns, being able to、uh, make decisions, being able to act. A lot of that is what artificial intelligence is about. The whole field is the science of making computers intelligent. So I would say absolutely, computers. Are intelligent.、Uh, it's intelligent through the mathematical models that we empower it with. But、uh, I agree that that is a degree of intelligence we're able to、mm. uh, endow our uh, machines with. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and right now I'm speaking with Feifei Li. She's a prominent computer scientist at Stanford University, whose leading role in developing artificial intelligence has earned her the nickname "the Godmother of AI." Let me ask you about your own personal story, because as I mentioned in our introduction, you recently wrote a memoir in which you recount your personal story alongside a scientific one. You write about growing up in a middle-class family in China, then leaving everything behind to move to the United States. So, Feifei Li, when did you know that science was your calling? That's a great question.、Um, part of the reason I wrote this book is actually to share that passion with my audience, and it's a love letter to science. So. I feel that、um, it was early when I was a little girl, maybe around pre-teenagehood, like around ten, eleven year old. I was already clearly more fascinated by nature and loved by、uh, STEM classes. And then throughout my teenagehood, even though I had a unique journey of being an immigrant, so across the continents,、um, that. Passion for science only increased as time goes. You also write about、um, facing tough economic circumstances. Your mom was in poor health when you were growing up. How did that context play into what you wanted to do with this passion that you're talking about? Your passion for science. So this is the interesting thing, Pia.、Um, I appreciate that you calling out this experience, but what I appreciate even more so is now getting my readers to tell me. How much they see their own journey, and especially their parents' journey, in uh, uh, of my young readers,、uh, that my story as an immigrant going from a home country to a new home country and plunged into much tougher social, economical, cultural challenges is actually a universal story, and it's a story that many people share. But it's really the combination of. That passion, undying passion, as well as incredible support and mentorship of people around me. 
You're so right that so many um, immigrants, I'm a kid of immigrants, can see, I can see my parents in your story, and so many people have that shared experience um, moving halfway around the world. And within, okay, so you've got this passion for science, you've got all this support. You, you, you could have gone into, I don't know, more traditional fields and, you know, biology, physics, chemistry, something like that. Computer vision was still really in the realm of science fiction when you were making these sacrifices and pursuing a career in this. Why did you think this was a field worth putting all of you into? I actually think science in its purest form is driven by curiosity, is driven by this uh, irrational almost, just just love of pursuing the unknown. And uh, I don't want to make it more complicated than that. I did not go hmm. into AI or computer vision calculating if this were a uh, famous field, if this were a fashion, if this might, you know, 20 years later become the driving force of uh, our future. And all None of these even existed um, in, in my head. I went in because I was curious. I was deeply, deeply curious about how the brain works and can we make computer brains that work in similar ways. Yeah, I mean, I find that so interesting because... You, as you said, look, the voice in my head was saying, stick with it. But computer vision was so new. Um, when you started creating ImageNet, there were people saying, come on, Fei-Fei, this, this is impractical. This isn't going to work. This is too big of a leap. That's true. <laughs> I did. <laughs> and some of them are my fellow um, scientists. And I don't think that was any ill intention. Scientific progress is a lot of trial and error. And the scientists, as friends and colleagues, are the first ones to critique each other. So that hypothesis that I had, that, that passion, conviction of you know, data-driven AI was a bold idea. It was more or less uh, very maverick. And uh, being questioned was completely normal. I guess the question for me was, now that you're being questioned and challenged, what do you do with it, right? And hmm. uh, luckily, I persevered and with my students and collaborators. You mentioned that... Um we're sort of at an inflection point, or that inflection point was hit last year in, in 2023. And you also said, I'm still excited by this. And I said that that made me feel good. It re reassured me. At the same time, we've seen people um, quite concerned about the future with AI. Your longtime peer, um, Jeffrey Hinton, Canadian University of Toronto professor who left Google, he and others have signed an open letter calling for a pause in AI experiments because they fear where this could all lead for us as humans. Do, do you share those concerns? Yeah, actually, just a couple of months ago, I was in Toronto and having a great time talking to Professor Hinton, both privately and publicly. Uh, I want to say... So I'm absolutely aware of the anxiety of a new technology like AI brings, and and I feel that's very very justified in terms of different reactions to a to a new technology. I also on the specific concern about machines being sentient and that leads to an existential crisis of humanity. I respect that, especially I live in a university where all kinds of ideas are being explored and debated. 
And it's almost the job of the intellectual, you know, scholars to be um, foreseeing possibilities. They they might not materialize, but having that debate, having that uh, discourse is totally respectful and healthy. Having said that, as someone who's been working AI, especially human-centered AI for so many years now, I think the concern I have are much more pressing and urgent on social risks. And these are more, more concrete social risks, such as the impact of mis- and disinformation on our, uh, especially democracy, the bias and uh, copyright and IP infringement of data, the, the job shift, you know, for it's, it's, it's a very complex picture when it comes to AI's impact in, in jobs. And all this are, are much more real, much more um, concrete, and much more urgent social risks. And some of them might even turn into catastrophic social risks. You know, you're in journalism. You, you think about this from all angles, from disinformation to misinformation, from the way, you know, creator economy is being impacted. It has both um, the good and the bad and the, the messy, right? So, so I think they're real. And so you have advised U.S. President Joe Biden on how to regulate AI. Of course, Canada, too, is grappling with its own AI regulation. So what would you tell lawmakers? What did you tell the president? What What would you tell Canadian lawmakers? Well, first of all, I actually uh, don't prefer the word regulate per se because policymaking is more complex and multidimensional than just regulation. Regulation, to me, puts more emphasis on the guardrails, which is important. We can talk about it. But when I have my dialogue with lawmakers and uh, President Biden and and, uh, politicians, policymakers, I tend to emphasize on the fuller landscape of policymaking about AI. For example, with President Biden, um, the, the most important message I have right now for lawmakers, maybe for Canadian uh, governments too, but I think Canadian governments are doing, is doing a fantastic job actually, is a public sector AI uh, investment to adapt a moonshot mentality for public uh, sector AI investment because it is so important to have a healthy AI ecosystem where not only we have companies pursuing business opportunities and commercialization of this technology, but we have public sector scholars, researchers, teachers, uh, uh, thought leaders to use AI for creating public goods from Hmm. climate solutions to discovering cure for rare diseases to, you know, um, better ways of creating arts and music. So that's part of policymaking. On the regulatory side, I think we should be very, very thoughtful. This is a very, very horizontal new technology. And humanity has gone through this multiple times and we have always survived, but we need to learn our lessons. We should... uh, support new technology to make our lives better. But we should also, in places where rubber meets the road, when we have high stake and critical situations like human lives, like financial transactions, like environment, we should put guardrails. So 
All this should be done in a thoughtful way, in a nuanced way, not in just one or two hyped sentences. Hmm. You said moonshot mentality. This is something you've also said to the U.S. president. What does that mean, moonshot mentality? It's the, the moonshot mentality to me is the ambition, scale, scope of the public sector investment for AI. For example, to be very concrete, uh, Stanford Human Center AI Institute, which I co-founded and lead today, uh, has been at the forefront of leading the advocacy of national research uh, cloud for AI research. And it's because AI is a very expensive technology. In order to do AI, do AI for climate, do AI for healthcare, do AI for robotics, do AI for whatever. We need compute resources. These are chips as well as data. And individual universities are now falling more and more behind compared to the big tech company investment in AI. So, you know, we're lacking opportunity to do some more exciting work. And a national AI research cloud and data repository can really uh, rejuvenate that ecosystem. I understand that you watched the movie Oppenheimer with your family. It, of course, won the Golden Globe for Drama Motion Picture just last weekend. And I'm bringing it up because I also understand that you feel that there might be some parallels um, uh, from, the, from the plot of Oppenheimer to what we're talking about today, which is AI. And I'm just wondering if you could draw that parallel for me. Maybe a little less than 100 years ago, but about that time, that modern physics was making breakthroughs from atomic physics to, you know, high energy physics to quantum physics. And all that was really changing a lot of the the world, of course, in this specific case, uh, eventually atomic physics was weaponized. But AI is also, a hundred years later, uh, very similar in uh, compared to modern physics, which is it's becoming very, very powerful. It's actually even more horizontal than modern physics in the way that it can impact every single business through the the AI technology. And as scientists, we are simultaneously grappling with the excitement of the technology, but also its social impact and personal responsibility. And this is where Oppenheimer as a movie, as well as a person, um, you know, reminds us of the time we live in. I personally mm. believe a scientist, just like all citizens of a society, has responsibility for how we are developing our technology, how we're communicating our technology, and how we are participating in the human-centered future or, or the governance mm. of our technology. Just before I let you go, I want to ask you about someone else that you write about in your memoir. This is Albert Einstein, a real hero of yours. And as you said, I started out studying physics. I love the fact that Princeton University, your alma mater, um, was also his home as a scholar. I just wonder, do you, th do you think when you think of your hero, like what would he make of all of this? What do you think he'd make of AI as, as it begins to really take further root in our world? That's such a wonderful question. No one has asked me that. Um, and there are many reasons I love about Albert Einstein. Of course, he is one of the most brilliant scientists, imaginative scientists of our whole, you know, human history. 
But one of the reasons I really love about him is uh, he is simultaneously a scientist and a humanist. He has a deep compassion for humanity, and being a Jew himself, I think give him a, a incredible insight as well. And I think if he were to be alive today, looking at AI, I think he would be. Possibly simultaneously, extremely intrigued by the power of this technology and the, the scientific principles behind it, as well as its human impact. I would love to think, you know, at least、um, for 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 self selfish reason, that he would agree with my conviction. That this technology should be rooted in a human centeredness. That we need to、uh, be mindful of how we develop as well as deploy and govern this technology. I've so enjoyed listening to you and getting to know a little bit more about you,、uh, Fei Fei. You're such an important figure in、um, the development of AI. I appreciate you making time for us. Thank you, Pia. I really enjoyed our conversation. Fei Fei Li is a computer scientist renowned for her work in the field of artificial intelligence. Her memoir is called "The World's I See." You can find all the stories we bring you each week on the Sunday Magazine over on our website, cbc.ca/sunday. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thank you for lending us your ear, and we'll talk to you again on Sunday. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.